Um, do you pay a cheaper rent for storing meat in your apartment? <laughs> Listen, I welcome you into my meat locker <laughs> that doubles as my apartment, and you come in here. You don't. You don't come into my meat locker and say, "What's all this meat?" Here? <laughs> You're the guest. You can't complain about the temperature. You're a guest. The biggest side of cold beef I've gotten here, it turns out, is you. <laughs> Okay, first of all, it's not that cold in here. You're you're like draped as if you're hiking to Machu Picchu <laughs> in the winter. If you look on our Instagram, you can see Greg wearing the Green Goblin Sarape <laughs> sitting here, beanie over my head and headphones, blanket over my my shoulder. El Goblin Verde, <laughs> which is my favorite Dorito tie-in flavor. <laughs> it's my favorite Mountain Dew flavor. <laughs> Greg, I don't know if you've looked at your gas bill lately, but I'm not turning on the gas for you. <laughs> Just start a small fire in here. We'll open the window. Uh, Greg, Kamala Harris is coming here later. I've got to save my gas bill for her. When she's in town, she stays here. <laughs> she likes to keep it low key. She likes to get back to her roots, which is sleeping on my couch. Yeah, sleeping, crashing on my couch. I still remember election night when she called me uh, on that phone and she said, we did it, Daniel. <laughs> and then CNN edited it to say Joe because, you know, deep state. You did. <laughs> They deep faked the phone call. She's holding a breakfast bar and we like, we did it, Daniel, but it's actually, they deep faked it. It's a phone now. <laughs> we communicate by breakfast bar. <laughs> but look, let's, wa- let's welcome people in here. I'm Daniel Zafrin. I'm Greg Gonzalez. You might know me from We Did It, Daniel. <laughs> But this is the LA- You might know me from Cigarettes After Sex. Hi, I'm that Greg Gonzalez, yes. <laughs> You've also been deepfaked, haven't you? We, and we're two victims of deepfake. <laughs> Let's give him a little bit more hair. Not a lot. Not a little bit more hair. I'm saying he's not banned. I told somebody at work about that, but oh, there's this band called Cigarettes After Sex, and people are like, oh, they're so good. I was like, yeah, the you know lead singer's name is is my name is Greg Gonzalez. And they're like, oh yeah, uh, and I don't know if they're I... not that good. <laughs> <laughs> Your name's Greg. Um, that was the basic reaction. To oh, do you work here? <laughs> so this is the L.A. Meekly yes. Los Angeles History Podcast. So what we're gonna do for people who've never listened before, welcome. Where yeah, th- this is it. Yeah, <laughs> um, we're gonna talk a little bit. We're gonna talk about some things around LA, mm-hmm. and then we're going to give some history of Los Angeles in a little bit. So that's how the show works. We used to have to do this and apologize for intros, but we don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> um, so before we get into any of that, we yes. have to address uh, error that oh, happened last an month. Error. one month ago today, and an error was released into the world—a deep fake of sorts. Yeah, an elephant error is in the room. We have to address it. We forgot at the end of the last episode. To give a catchphrase at That's the right. end of the episode. I remember you saying that. And I remember thinking like, oh no, his completest brain is going to malfunction. And we have to start all over again from the beginning. <laughs> they're, no, they're not all complete. No, no, you don't understand. The rest of the recording's good, but it's bad because of this. Because we're missing a central part of it. Well, I thought someone would say something. <laughs> Sorry. And you know I, what? That was that was very mean of me to laugh. I'll leave that sentence at that. <laughs> Just for the completists out there, yep. uh, you know who you are. Yes, uh, look, yes, I'm yes. sure people noticed. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you noticed, let us know on Instagram yeah. uh, at Cigarettes After Sex. I wonder if we can start an episode. Let Kamala Harris know. <laughs> uh, if she's even real anymore. I wonder if we release an episode, say, like, oh, this one we're going to be talking about palm trees, and then we never get to it. I wonder if people would write in and be like, you forgot to talk about palm trees, or if they would <laughs> just be like me yep 
<laughs> That's just an episode of LA Meekly. Well, most people don't listen to this. They just press play and then... And they vacuum incredibly loud yeah, for an hour and a half. They press play and then the people they're interrogating have to listen <laughs> to it. Uh, and we know they're not talking. Yeah. So let's a, a, a catchphrase from the end of last episode. We were just, talking about toys. Uh, let's just say being cremated into Frisbees since 2013. That's good. That's a really good one. Um, dropping the Super Bowl since 2013. <laughs> Oh, and I'm so glad my pick for the Super Bowl one. <laughs> Having pointy boobs since 2013. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. What's the German oh, yeah. Barbies thing? Frisbees do have pointy boobs, don't they? <laughs> That's what makes them aerodynamic. <laughs> the Build Lily is who you're thinking <laughs> Good of. Thing. Right? Yeah, thank you. Okay, now we got to welcome in our new Patreon people oh, we've got. Oh, yay. We, got some... we have Maria. Hi, Maria. No last name given. And also John Paul Goloski. I jump who's gotta be, he's gotta be a serial killer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Three names that means that you you yeah. hunt people for yeah. sport. <laughs> or he's a pope. He's either a pope or a serial killer. So thank you both of yeah, you thank for you very joining much. us on our Patreon. And you too can join at patreon.com slash LA Meekly. And at any level now, you will get a free LA Meekly sticker just for joining. So these two people uh, at the first of the month, we will send those out for you. Uh, which is right now, yeah. <laughs> when at, at this very moment, I am shoving my hand down a, a mailbox snorkel on the yeah. side of the street, and I'm, you know, I can't get my arm out, and they're like, just go, let go of the letter, and I say, never, 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 never. the mailman's going to have to grab it from me. It's yeah. the only way I'll legally let go of this. <laughs> out of my cold, blue, loss of circulated hand, that's what I say. <laughs> that is what you say. Yeah, that's what I say. That's your old catchphrase. Yeah. You're, it's gonna, it's, it's a lot to put on a tombstone, but we'll make it work. And then I ended all with humana, humana, humana. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get into March, yes. let's talk about something we did in February. February. The love month, of course. Well, you go first. Okay. Well, mine, I, we did just this past weekend. Uh -huh. It was a, so a Valentine's Day gift from Melissa to me and mm -hmm. also herself because she got to do it too. Uh, Clever. Yeah. That, that's a married life hack. Yeah. As a wife guy. Let me give you a married Jesus life. Christ. Let me give you a, me give you a, a married life hack. Uh, she gave it to me, but we both experienced it as a trip to Sephora. <laughs> I got to go too. So, uh, so what we did it was it was a company called Amazing Co. It's like a scavenger hunt. Okay, where oh yeah. What? The, both of you. I could see how both of you appeals to both of you separately and as a as a couple. It's very, a couple scavengers. Yeah, as a couple scavengers like uh, both of you. And when we can make scavenging romantic, <laughs> you get like clues on your phone. And it, they're not hard, but you have sure. to like solve a cipher in this and solve a riddle. One thing we had to call in and like listen to the song. And, oh, wow. Okay. But there was like a few different parts of town. I guess there's Malibu, Pasadena, and Redondo Beach. We did the Malibu one. Okay. So the clues tell you where you need to go and then you go to this place. They're restaurants. Okay. I should I should say oh. my thing of the month is again food related. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, it was so strange. Uh, I thought you were going to squeeze in like, and then we stopped a bunch to get food while on this. But no, 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 no Greg. The trip is food. <laughs> <laughs> the doctor was food all along. But we the doctor, I'm food. <laughs> I can't operate on food. I'm food. We I think we went to f ended up going to four different places so at each one oh. you say I'm here with Amazing Co and then they give you food. Oh wow. <laughs> they okay. give you food from this place. You you bring a picnic basket with some cooling yeah. gels <laughs> and you get it all. You go to these different places and there's places to stop along the way mm -hmm. and it gives you like history of these places so, like we took us to the San the, no, the Malibu Pier right. and that like AV thing which was really weird and we'll, we'll get into 
into that. Okay. Not time for that right now. And then at the end, once you get everything, so we got like an appetizer, salad, main, mm. and dessert. And then it says like, all right, go to this beach and then you have a picnic and you watch the nice. sunset. It was very nice. Very nice and a lot of fun. Like it was the perfect combination of like exploring a neighborhood, yeah. getting food, which is all I want. All you want to do. <laughs> that is literally every vacation you've gone on. It's like, is that the Eiffel Tower? Is that uh, a baguette on the floor? <laughs> is that a cream puff shaped like the Eiffel Tower? <laughs> the only thing is that it's kind of expensive okay. and they don't give you enough food. Like, I wish they gave more food. Right. Oh, oh I bet. <laughs> I bet that's your one complaint. I wish there was a punishing amount of food. Like, I should have leftovers. <laughs> I didn't cramp up enough uh, from all the food I ate. That's the only flaw is that they're, they should give you more food. Uh-huh. But it was still a lot of fun. That sounds great. And, uh, the, I'm sure, yeah, the, the Pasadena one, I'm sure, is very cool. Yeah. Redondo Beach, yeah, I'm sure is okay. Yeah, I but, bet that's pretty cool. I'd like to explore eh, more. It's no Malibu, but... It's funny that it... The scavenger hunt appeals to her detective sensibilities and your <laughs> metal detector at the beach oh my sensibilities. God. When we got to the beach, a guy had the metal detector and I was like, that That's guy's living life. the dream. <laughs> <laughs> to be the metal detector guy on the beach. He's just trying to find bottle caps. I know. <laughs> I'll find like a nail, yeah. one nail a month and that's all I need. One good nail a month. All anybody needs. Um, and that's my Groucho joke for the day. Um, <laughs> now, what did you do in the month of, the love month of February? Love month. On love day, we went to Stony Point in Pasadena, which is a very beautiful old restaurant where a guy plays piano. And we're like, is he playing uh, Baby I'm Amazed? And he was. Um, Do you call it Baby I'm Amazed? Isn't it? It's Maybe I'm Amazed. Oh, okay. It's a different song then. Uh, you're wrong. Paul's <laughs> oh, no. wrong. He was singing Baby's Got Back. Yeah, that's what it was. Uh, parentheses, I'm amazed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, usually this segment is for like, you should try this too. Start watching Columbo. <laughs> I've been watching a lot of Columbo. It's on Tubi. It's on Peacock. I don't know if I caught right away. I, I knew- you know who would like Amazing Co? Amazing Columbo. It's just that. It's just that. <laughs> you can't see me doing the head movement. And oh. one more thing. One more Can thing. I have two sandwiches <laughs> instead? But the LAPD, Homicide, it's what, late 60s through the 70s. I think like through the 70s, we're in the 70s right now. And then it goes to like 2003. Like Columbo goes for a very long time. Wait a minute. Columbo was on the air making new episodes in two... No way. Okay, maybe not 2003, but late 90s. Okay. Like, he was, he like went very far okay. with Columbo to old man Columbo, where you're like, oh, well, you should <laughs> hang it up, dude. Uh, retire, and we can maybe see... And one more thing. Can you take me to the hospital? <laughs> but a lot of 70s LA, like Hollywood Bowl in the 70s, Sportsman's Lodge. Mm. The last episode had both Laugh in the Dark, which is uh, we covered in one of our creepy Christmases. It was at the Long Beach each pike it was an amusement park and there was a dead mummified body in the laugh and dark ride laugh and dark they're walking uh you see leslie nielsen and somebody laugh and dark's background they also go to a travel town in the same episode too so lots of old la lots of the valley which i'm sure you would like we always end up googling like if he stops for to get chili or a hot dog or something you're like what is that place is it chili johns if you're somebody who loves 70s la and you're like i wonder if colombo is yeah it's all colombo baby and that's a different detective who says baby that's kojak that's kojak kojak says baby and he has yeah. no hair that's how i could tell the two apart <laughs> One of them doesn't have one more thing. Well, well one of them missing one more thing, his hair. <laughs> so we've both been detectives this month. Hey, well, you know, that's all I've ever wanted. So yeah, we finally got deputized. Yeah. By... How do I become a detective without being a cop? <laughs> I'll sign up for Amazing Co. <laughs> well, that was the love month. Yeah. We'll put a pin in the love month until 2024. Uh, that's its kink. <laughs> it's something of a hellraiser. It's a, it's a real Cenobite, the month of February. <laughs> yeah. The month of February is a real Albert Fish. <laughs> 
So let's talk about March. Okay. A notoriously pious month who's not into anything like a like a filthy Cenobite. Yeah, into. yeah, yeah. Nothing nasty. It's more of a xenomorph month, uh, which looks sexual, but is not. It's not, but you're... Something you're about your brain is like, hmm, a lot of leather isn't happening here, but it's, it's skin. So what are we talking about this month, Greg? How would you describe what we're talking about this month? We're going to be talking about music venues of old LA lore. I know mine certainly is. Yeah, these are places that no longer exists. Yeah, mine doesn't exist anymore. Because we both, we 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 both, meaning I said we should do venue, musical venues. And, and I flipped out. Yeah, you said, music in my town? <laughs> but I'm a xenomorph. <laughs> I don't like music. I like eating people. Instead of a music box and yeah. take the pin out of the love month, uh-huh. the love month, or I put the pin back in. Uh, oh. oh my God. <laughs> um, we Instead of a music box, we had a Candy is Dandy mm-hmm. episode, which you should all listen to yes. our Candy Review podcast, Candy is Dandy anywhere podcasts are found. So we're making up for the lack of music by talking about music music venues because we just cannot stop talking about... this really did wet my whistle to like, do we want to do the punk episode next? Because like... (laughs) It's too much music, Greg. We'll just be a music podcast this whole year. We'll do (laughs) themes. I'm glad that it was unspoken, but we both gravitated towards smaller... Yeah. Smaller in size than like the forum. Yeah, I almost did the Wiltern. I was about a a page into doing the Wiltern and I thought like, I don't... Mm. I don't care. I don't care about this. <laughs> but then I was like, well, there's the other one that I ended up doing that I really want to talk about because as a teenager, I read an oral history of punk and this place was brought up and I like kind of romanticized what was literally like a like a smelly basement where people were doing drugs. <laughs> oh, no, that's the smell. That's the smell, uh, which I almost, <laughs> almost did. I, I also almost did and I, I didn't do that one. The two I picked, one of them I picked because I had heard part of the story and I was like, this is so weird and uh, it, it's so weird, like a Cenobite's king. <laughs> Not to Cenobite shame. But then the other one was a place that is so valley yeah. that it had like I it, it's you got peanut butter in my chocolate like why weren't these two why weren't me in this place yeah brought together sooner yeah what oh I, I guess I'm going first yeah you go first oh I guess oh, I geez. can't scald you for well scald or scold uh scald is with hot water scold uh, yeah, is yeah, that's you what I'm doing at, you yell at me in the back seat when we're, I'm like I you know there's a jack-in-box right here and we're all hungry <laughs> yeah, well, we keep- have jack-in-box at home <laughs> I make tiny tacos every night <laughs> and suddenly you want jacks so let, let's get into it I'll okay. scold Scald you later okay. with, with, with the rest of the water, coffee yeah. that we have. Oh, God. That's my king. <laughs> I'm a real Cenobite for coffee. <laughs> okay, so it's about time we talk about the Monty, Greg. The full Monty. Oh, jeez, Louise. Okay. We're heading out east to the gone but not forgotten El Monty Ooh. Legion Stadium. I know nothing about this. You pitched it to me. I've heard of El Monte. <laughs> That's where Thrifties is at. Oh, yeah. Uh, but uh, <laughs> The really smelly Thrifties factory. The, the smelliest place they should have punk shows there. <laughs> they should have punk shows there. It smells and it's a big ice cream. But I don't know anything about the stadium. I wanted to look into it, but I thought, why bother? Why bother? Yeah. Save yourself some research. Yeah. I'm going to be scolded about it later. <laughs> I'm going to get a carafe full of this in the eyes. <laughs> El Monte Legion Stadium. Stadium is a strong word, but it's also not entirely a wrong word mm-hmm. because this place could fit 3,000 people in it. That's pretty big. Yeah. But it was built between 1927 and 1929 as the gym for El Monte High School and was located at the intersection of Valley and Ramona. It was a school gym, but it was also just impressive enough and big enough to host some of the wrestling events during the 1932 Olympics. Oh, wow. Okay. But then the world fought back the next year in 1933 
when the Long Beach earthquake hit, and the damage, even as far north as El Monte, was so severe that most of the El Monte high school buildings had to be condemned, wow. with the exception of their gym, as really? it was known at the time. Well, it was so strong. I mean, if you can handle a bunch of Olympic wrestlers slamming down on you, you can. Uh, an earthquake is nothing. This is cl- clearly a 4.5. <laughs> I wrestled that guy down to a 4.5. The 4. judges 5. said so. <laughs> yeah, the, after the Long Beach earthquake, the Olympic judges were yeah. still there. <laughs> 7.9. Six points. <laughs> It was newer and stronger, so it survived that and was used for high school basketball games and graduations until the new buildings could be built. And suddenly they had an even newer gym and they didn't need this old gym anymore. So eventually on January 16th, 1945, the building was sold to the American Legion Post 261 for almost $27,000 when it was officially renamed the El Monte Legion Stadium. So it was the the, American Legion. We put the... Legion back in America. <laughs> American Legion. <laughs> this country used to mean something. They used to put America in front of everything. American Express. American Advantage Dining Program. American Airlines. Where are these places, Greg? Where are they? Now it's what? Bank of California? <laughs> Not in my American Legion. What, where's my Bank of America? Huh? What happened? What happened? What So the American Legion used it for meetings and welcome home dinners for the troops coming home from World War, the troop one. But that's really a big place to have just a bunch of veterans meeting and having light reception dinners every once in a while. And that means it's also expensive. So they started leasing the place out to other events to make money. They used it as a sort of banquet hall, but they also, for renting out things, but they Mm. also had boxing matches, Thursday night wrestling where Gorgeous George fought, Wow! mini car races and roller derby. The Thunderbirds eventually played there for a little bit, but they also rented it out for dances and music. And around this time, which was the late 40s, country music, which I will not stop talking about today, was happening. Having a moment in Southern California. That's when a country guy named Cliffy Stone decided to choose the Legion Stadium as the location of his country western variety shows he did every Saturday night at 7.30 called Cliffy Stone's Hometown Jamboree in 1949. I love all stacks of hay, plaid, gingham plaid, people putting their thumbs into their jeans. I love all of this. There's farmer's daughters as far as the eye can see. (laughs) Farmers shaking their heads in the corner. Yep. Shotguns mounted on the wall for the if you dance with one of the daughters. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I love it. I love country culture. (laughs) A beautiful community. (laughs) A beautiful community that loves keeping American in the American (laughs) Oh, they insist. So why did he choose a place so far outside of Hollywood? Yeah, it was big. It was big and it was available. That's really the reason. And Sometimes it's just that. <laughs> Sometimes if you're big enough and you're available enough, people <laughs> will come to you. I learned this during the love month. <laughs> and Cliffy Stone was already kind of a big deal. So this show was broadcast on TV nationwide, apparently. Oh, wow, and really? he had people on it like Johnny Cash and Cousin Ernie himself, Tennessee oh. Ernie Ford. Cousin Ernie. I mean, if you've heard a Tennessee Ernie Ford song and then seen the Cousin Ernie character on yeah. I Love Lucy, it's like, where did this guy, like, which is the real guy? Yeah, here? yeah. There, there's a real uh, Channing Tatum quality about Tennessee Ernie's for. I'm sure we both saw I Love Lucy before we started listening to country music. Uh, oh, I, you don't know, Mike. Can I even remember when I started <laughs> listening to country music? But I remember, because of course we knew Cousin Ernie from yep. I Love Lucy. Yep. And then I think I told you that he was a singer. Yeah, I because think, I was like, have you heard the song 16 Tons? <laughs> I had heard it. I didn't make the connection that it was him, though. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, why would you? Yeah. Well, exactly. It, imagine yeah. Cousin Ernie singing 16 <laughs> Tons. 16 Tons. 
My God, I got Cenobites on the brain. <laughs> uh, we're still stuck in the love one. <laughs> I got 16 tongues. I'm going to kill you. Yeah, Ed Gein's song. <laughs> I got my tongues at the company store. <laughs> so it was this show that helped popularize country music in California, which will lead directly into the second place I'll be talking about later. But okay. as the country lovers say, hold your horses. <laughs> People started referring to the show as the Oki Stomp and the Legion Stadium itself as the Grand Ole Opry of the West Coast, which is not the only place that I'm going to be talking about that got that moniker. Around El Monte, the building was affectionately known as the Pink Elephant, which obviously I've only seen black and white, not obviously, but I've only seen black and white photos of the place. Uh I can't tell if it was pink, but it had to have been pink, right? Like there's not a, unless it's like a communist thing, like a, well, the American Legion would never allow that. No, no, they wouldn't. Pink Elephant's also... Like a drunk visual, yeah, a visual motif for alcohol. Yeah, being but there wasn't plastered. alcohol uh, at a country show, Greg. Never. There's not <laughs> alcoholic moonshine. <laughs> yeah, I got a moonshine mocktail. <laughs> Those X's on the jugs. If you look closely, they're crosses. <laughs> it's a pious place, Greg. It's, yeah, triple the pious. This is three Jesuses strong. (laughs) But as the 40s turned into the 50s and the 50s turned into more of the 50s, country started losing popularity as the popular type of music and a new sound started appearing. A sound you might not be ready for, but your children are going to drive to El Monte to hear it. And this next chapter in the story of the El Monte Legion Stadium is all thanks to our beloved Art LeBou. Art LeBou. A.K.A. Lobo. Art Lobo, of course, a legendary local DJ that helped popularize rock and roll music and coined the phrase oldies but goodies. He was playing this controversial new music on the radio, but he wanted a place in LA where he could hold dances and have live music for his core audience, which was teenagers sure. who loved rock and roll. Yeah. They love rock and roll. Put another dime in, in the, the jukebox. Baby. Baby. Um, I've got a bad reputation. I've got 16 tongues. <laughs> the pro- I've got a ba- Also, it could be an Ed Gein song. I've got a bad <laughs> reputation. Uh, you're going to hear a lot of things about me in the graveyard that are all true. They're all true, but I'm just telling you. <laughs> the problem was LA at the time was a footloose town. The city of LA had a rule that people under a, also footloose could be Ed Keen. Uh, the city of LA, <laughs> that was his favorite kind of foot. Um, the city of LA had a rule that people under 18 weren't allowed to go to dances unless they were officially sanctioned by the LA Board of Education. Jesus Christ. Yeah, you say you couldn't. You're certified by a notary to dance? Yeah. A council of 60-year-old teachers had yeah. to, um, a sock hop? Uh, I don't know. What about uh, Sadie Hawkins? No, that's too sexual. There's a, a girl in the title. It's too sexual. There's a dead girl in the title. <laughs> and one guy's like, dead girls are okay, right? And that's how you knew that you were talking to him. <laughs> was Sadie Hawkins dead when they named Sadie Hawkins dances no after her? Or is she just dead now? Because it's been like 80 <laughs> it's years. Been 103 years. <laughs> gone too soon. <laughs> Unless she died back then. And it's tragic. It's truly it, gone too soon. Yeah. I have no idea who Sadie Hawkins is. I Neither do I. I let's stop the research right now and look into it. <laughs> let's do a hard pivot. This episode's about Sadie Hawkins. <laughs> the death of Sadie Hawkins. <laughs> who killed Sadie Hawkins? <laughs> also, if she might, if she was actually killed, I I'm apologize. I'm so sorry. I'm so I'm sorry. So sorry. So sorry. Okay, so Board of Education, this was yes. the rule in LA, which is insane if you were Dance under- versus Board of Education. Dance versus. <laughs> so under 18, you could not go to a dance okay. unless it was sanctioned by the Board of Education, which is so crazy. Yeah. And an Art LeBeau dance that had Chuck Berry singing about his dingling wasn't going to be approved for LeBeau. Yeah. So LeBeau decided to look outside of LA City Limits to El Monte, where the Legion Stadium was looking for a new tenant. So cool. this is why they 
went to El Monte because it skirted the rules. Kind of like with West Hollywood, like sure. the Sunset Strip stuff was looser rules in terms it of gambling. just outside of the city limits, yeah. Just outside of city limits, which this place could have been called LA City Limits. <laughs> so Cliffy Stone's out, Art LeBeau's in. Starting in 1955, Art LeBeau had a Saturday night dance every other weekend in the El Monte Legion Stadium with a combination of records being played and also live rock performances from both local acts and also rising and established stars. So Here's who you got. You had the aforementioned Chuck Berry. Mm-hmm. Uh, watch the toilets. Yeah. Uh, make he, sure he to, is. <laughs> make sure to run your hand around the toilet yeah. bowl like a magic trick before if Chuck Berry's been in the building. Your guy who was a little bit of both categories of rising star and local act. You had Richie Valens oh, perform there. Jackie Wilson, Sam Cooke, Ray Charles, Oof. Fats Domino, Oof. Dick Dale, Jerry Lee Lewis, Ike and Tina Turner, Rosie and the Originals, The Penguins, Oof. who even had a song called Memories of Elmont about mm-hmm. this place written by, you guessed it, Frank Zappa, <laughs> who apparently wrote songs for the Penguins. I didn't know he wrote for the Penguins. It's crazy. That is, that doesn't make it. That makes almost as much sense as Tennessee or as cousin Ernie <laughs> being Tennessee Ernie Ford. <laughs> Shows cost three dollars or three fifty if it was a big name act, and in those instances, most of the kids weren't expecting the extra fifty cent fee. So whoever didn't have it, LeBeau would just cover them. To wow, come that's in. great. Imagine the difference between you seeing like you seeing your friend's band and you seeing like Jerry Lee Lewis Motorhead is fifty cents. Uh, uh- <laughs> And let that be a lesson to our friends' bands charging so much. It should be free. It should be free. Artists should not be paid for their work. <laughs> As we're learning. But also, let's take a moment to tell people to subscribe to our Patreon. Patreon please. Because uh, Jerry Lee Lewis will handwrite you a postcard at $5 a month. Don't let him know that you have any teenage daughters. <laughs> Don't let him know you're his cousin. <laughs> <laughs> I was just talking the other day with Ada about, like, I, I think the one performer I would have died to see, and if I can go back to see would probably be Fats Domino. And I don't know why. I just think Fats Domino is great. I, I'm a chubby checker kind of guy. <laughs> Mia, I like to twist. Uh, I like to twist. I like to twist, twist again. Different times of the yeah, year. I like, part to tw- USA. I like to twist cubed, much like uh, the Xenomorphs do. <laughs> the twist is not what you're thinking it is. <laughs> In twist cube, Paul Reiser has a standout performance, <laughs> a standout solo, an aria by Paul Reiser. And you twist never cube. thought you were going to say those words, but it really surprised you. <laughs> and also... Twist Resurrection, <laughs> Chubby versus Fats. I mean, it's what a franchise they've got going. And then Prometheus. <laughs> the least said about it. The better. The, so these shows were all broadcast on the radio as well, which helped build the place's reputation. It became a scene. Like this was the place to go for rock and roll music. Yeah. If you if you wanted to dance, if you wanted to outside of Ali's, as limits, the Beach Boys said, if you want to dance, <laughs> uh, who did not perform there? But if you want to dance, you got to drive about sixteen. <laughs> you got to drive to El Monte, yeah. <laughs> baby, baby. Maybe the laws are weird. <laughs> Art LeBeau would even interview some of the kids dancing on the oh, dance wow. floor on the air. There was also apparently secret VIP backrooms with slot machines, which I can't imagine the kids were in. Like, I, no. I'm sure there were like a, adults went yeah, to this also. the parents were dropping off the kids. They're yeah. like, I'm going to go to the bathroom real quick. Yeah. And <laughs> lost the family farm. Uh, yeah, I'm going to go to the adult bathroom, yeah. <laughs> uh, which means a casino. Yeah, that my favorite casino in Vegas is adult bathroom. <laughs> This show was beloved by local teens and rock and roll fans, which of course meant it was loathed by cops and old white people. Sure. Let's revisit that anti-dancing law the city of LA had for just a second. This wasn't just John Lithgow not wanting his daughter to get Randy in a small town. Like it sounds weird and quaint, but it was racist. Like it was a racially motivated law. Because white kids don't dance. (laughs) 
as the movie says. Yeah. <laughs> it was mostly meant to keep white kids from mixing together with black, Latino, and Asian kids. Okay. So like if there's no dances, these kids in a city that's getting more diverse, they will not be sure. together becoming friends, I guess. I don't know. Art LeBeau was against this sort of thing, these anti-dancing on every single level. He hated that they couldn't dance, hated that they were racist. It's crazy that LA was hairspray. Uh, is that what happens in hairspray? What happens in hairspray? Uh, the, the white kids want to go dance at the cool dance parties that are usually mixed, predominantly black people. And they, they it, there's a lot of trouble. Because they want to. Uh, but put it in terms I can understand, meaning Footloose, which is a movie <laughs> I've seen. Is So who's the priest father? <laughs> I, I, and when does Paul Reiser show yeah, up? Yeah, and Xenomorphs dancing with Cenobites? Not in my <laughs> not, city. Not in my town. Uh, not in my backyard. <laughs> so, okay. So Art LeBeau, he hated all of this. This is why he felt so strongly about this show in El Monte happening, because it was bringing kids of all ethnicities together in a mostly peaceful environment. Of course, sure. you know, fights. Fight, fight. Teens yeah. fight. Where all these kids could enjoy the music that they loved together, especially because of the demographics of Almonte, which were a lot of Latino kids at these shows who weren't necessarily welcome at the other places around town where you could listen to music. Mm -hmm. There were low rider shows in the parking lot after the concerts. There was no dress code so kids could express themselves the way they wanted, which we know from the Zoot Suit riots upset a lot of people, especially if you're Latino, Mm -hmm. including the cops, concerned citizens, and city council of Almonte, who actually managed to revoke the Legion's dance permit briefly in the summer of 1956 until 600 teens, the ACLU and the NAACP protested it and managed to get the permit reinstated with the caveats that the performers could not make sexual gyrations on stage. Some songs had to be shorter and you couldn't wear Levi's and leather jackets. So those were the new rules. Okay, here's the thing. Legion One and three kind of makes sense <laughs> if you're being like, oh, that's what that's footloose rules. But the second mm-hmm. one is so funny, like that they couldn't be long songs. Uh, you got to cut about two verses out yeah. of that thing. Yeah, it's such a weird. They were just music. This is how Pet Sounds was made. <laughs> <laughs> a famously reined in music. <laughs> Pet Sounds. You know how your third verse is? You just crammed all the sexual innuendo in the third verse. Yeah. A shorter song. If you're looking for places to cut, that's the place to do it. Now, Chuck Berry, when you say my dingling, <laughs> can we just say it's a ding? car? Yeah. <laughs> can we? Yeah, can we just do Ling? <laughs> Could it just be about Lingling the panda? <laughs> so, yeah, weird. I mean, Levi's and it's uh, the point in American history when Levi's were uh, yeah, controversial yeah, yeah, is yeah. very strange. Uh, they remind me of James Dean. <laughs> they remind me of that guy from three movies. <laughs> and I only get horny when I think about car crashes, so no jeans! <laughs> and you find out weird things about council members? <laughs> the city council is a bunch of Cenobites. <laughs> but even with these weird rules... No long songs. Long songs mean longer wait before orgy. <laughs> <laughs> So even with these weird rules, the shows were back on and they continued to be on and be really popular for it was either six or 10 years. I I read both of them. But eventually LeBeau booed on from El Monte. But the reputation of the place from all these shows gave the place an afterglow that still drew in big music names for a few years afterwards. There was Stevie Wonder, Big Brother and the Holding Company. The Grateful Dead recorded a live album there. Really? And... The Beatles really broadcast their performance from the Washington Coliseum in Washington, D.C. 
to the Legion Stadium wow. on March 14th. That's a get. They broadcasted to a few different places, sure, but, that but that's was one, one, of, one of them. That was one yeah. of them. It was pay-per-view, an early pay-per-view. Thing. I thought you were going to blow my mind like before they did Dodger Stadium. Yeah. The, uh, let's do a quick warm-up. Yeah. <laughs> Just for the cool kids. I would have been so upset if there's a no jeans rule and they're like, oh, the rebellious shaggy-haired kids from England are coming there in suits. You're like, oh, you... Narc, put jeans on. You you played right into their the yeah. El Monte City Council. <laughs> You're part of the problem. This is why the Beatles started wearing suits. <laughs> this is why they started dressing like Captain Crunch. But alas, once we got into the late '60s, rock and roll music sold out and became more commodified. And the puritanical city of LA sold out as well and became more liberal and got rid of their anti-dancing rules. So suddenly, without those restrictions in LA City proper, going all the way out to El Monte was no longer a necessity, and big names could perform for teens in bigger venues in the parts of town they were either living or staying and you didn't have to go to El Monte yeah. anymore. This was the disease that's progressivism was the <laughs> disease that slowly killed the El Monte Legion Stadium and drew away their profitability until 1973 when the Foreign Legion was forced to sell it to the U.S. Postal Service Jesus. who demolished it on August 13th, oh my God. 1974. A big structure like that? The pink elephant? No, we want a smaller, more inconvenient post office. <laughs> what are we going to do with this huge facility? Store mail? Do our job perfectly? <laughs> Pack it to the gills with mail. The the city of El Monte still remembers, though, and commemorates the memory with a fountain on the spot it used to be, where if you go up to look inside, it looks like a record, like the inside oh, of the fountain looks like a record with sound cool. waves. And there's also a mural of LeBeau and a few of the performers on the metro stop near there. Oh, that's awesome. So if you look real close when you're there, you'll get a vague tribute to an influential and safe place for teens of all races to come together and get horny to chubby checker. <laughs> so that's the El Monte. That's Legion pretty cool. Stadium. I had no idea that it existed and I'm um, I'm going to talk about mine now. And this is, as I said before, I read about a lot as a teenager and I've certainly romanticized places like this and like, I think like 924 Gilman in Berkeley, which is like the- What is that? Uh, in Berkeley. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say where is that. I said, what is that? Oh, oh, but also, where's Berkeley? Where's Berkeley? Um, <laughs> that's kind of where like uh, Operation Ivy and Green Day and a lot of those oh. East Bay bands started. Or the cool ones, anyway. Um, <laughs> like the Grateful Dead? Yeah. <laughs> CBG was obviously the other stinky old place where mm-hmm. punk happens in New York. We're talking about The Mask. M-A-S-Q-U-E. Oh, on Francais. The story of The Mask starts with Brendan Mullen, a half-Scottish, half-Irish lad who was born in Paisley, Scotland in October of 1949 and by the age of eight was living in Manchester, England. His father loved musical theater and Brendan's teenage years in England were spent writing about music for British magazines. He also played drums, too. Just not only like writing about music, but playing music too like was a, he in like the Beatles a, he, oh yeah did you not know that <laughs> before Ringo Starr jumped in uh, it was Brendan Mullen the problem was that he was doing it after they broke up and it's kind of hard to be in the Beatles when there are no more Beatles <laughs> that's the best time to get into the Beatles <laughs> you know, dude there's four spots open you could be any one of them in 1975 at the age of 26 Mullen came to Los Angeles on vacation and liked it so much he decided to stay which is wait do you have TB or something <laughs> that's what I was thinking like you, wait you're not sick with you don't got the coffers disease <laughs> showing up in 1975 and being like this is nice like no it wasn't uh, we know better now. Well, have you seen Columbo? <laughs> Murders every day. Columbo looks great because Columbo's always like his wife will keep him up and he's just like smoking like cigars and his hair is just a, a rat's nest. And he Sounds all, beautiful. And he's just always exhausted. But everyone else, all the like, he usually goes after like high class people. But it's like, it's such a, a weird area where people want to dress nice, like early 70s, late 60s. So it's like blazers and turtlenecks and suits. But the Beatles influence has already kicked everything over. So like they have like bad shaggy hair. And oh, suits and turtlenecks. It's we, awful. we've been watching the Bob Newhart show. Oh, right. Yeah. And these are the ugliest. Like, Suzanne Plachette, very pretty yeah. with the worst haircut ever. <laughs> like, 
There's so many people in this show that just have god awful. Like, yeah. the only reason Bob Newhart looks good is because he's bald. <laughs> best compliment. I, no, I mean this with offense. The best looking person on this show is the bald one. <laughs> Or the balding one. I'm sure in a few seasons, he will be the bald one. <laughs> he will be the bald one. We're only allowed to have one on each show. Ed Asner was the one on Mary yeah. Tyler Moore. So he stayed here in town. He took up odd jobs to keep himself here while looking for a place where he could rehearse and jam with other musicians. I think one of his jobs was he was shining shoes at Alvera Street. So let's take a moment to talk about the late 70s music scene in Los Angeles. Okay. What we call classic rock was all but done. <laughs> and the singer-songwriter Laurel Canyon thing was kind of fading out. But we said like Joni Mitchell and Carly Simon. I think James Taylor was still kind of around at that time. Okay, so softer. The softer. The, the music that's on like the wave. Exactly, yeah, exactly. I think like the mamas and papas were already like way done by that point too. Well, they were grandmamas and grandpapas by then <laughs> with a lot of weird wrinkles in there. <laughs> Glam was starting to plateau even though there was like, I, I knew it from this book and I kind of forget every once in a while that Glam is almost half of the equation that makes punk was like these right. kids wanted to be glam, but yeah. they were so dirty and angry that the glam came out weird. <laughs> but they didn't have the musical skills of, <laughs> of Brian May. We want to dress like T-Rex, but then that's it. <laughs> By the mid 70s, bloated rock acts like Van, well, they weren't bloated at the time. I consider Van Halen made pretty bloated, <laughs> but they were starting to make, the scene. They were, I didn't realize that Eddie Van Halen's from Pasadena, but they were starting yeah. to hit the scene at the time. Maybe Isn't David Lee Roth also? Or? I don't know. I, I, I didn't look into it. I just, I was, I was like, where's Van Halen from? And, it just had to, <laughs> and then as soon as David Lee Roth or Sammy Hagar was in the sentence, I'm like, I'm not going read any more about this. Uh, another local hometown hero musician. Imagine a show that could have been Eddie Van Halen and Richie Valens yeah. <laughs> in, live in concert together. You have to slow down. You are playing Donna too fast. Uh, funk disco groups like the Commodores and the Village People were topping the charts along with Donna Summer at the time. This is like the, on the brink of disco, basically. Right. Funk is becoming disco. Hometown bands like War and Al Chicano were at their peak at this time. And on the radio, February 1977, the Eagles released Hotel California and it won't stop playing. <laughs> and they never stopped and releasing it. And they never stopped releasing it. <laughs> Even reading like... Every 30 minutes since 1977, <laughs> it's you'll played hear on the Hotel radio. California. In any state, not just California. In any state, you'll hear Hotel California. That day, we all became California. There's a really great oral history where I learned about the punk scene of, the, of this era. And they, even there, they're like, it wouldn't stop. <laughs> it wouldn't. It was always on the radio. It single-handedly caused punk. <laughs> <laughs> Fleetwood Mac was at the top of their games. Dreams were released that year. BG Staying Alive was about to explode the world. Wow. This was the musical landscape. It was kind of a transition period. It sounds like a great transition period. I mean, like as... Uh, if Dreams is just coming out dreams, and Staying Alive is about to come, like that's, it's that's pretty, something. I mean, as an older, more mature adult. Yeah. <laughs> pretty good stuff but when i was reading this book like ah, like it was the worst thing but something was stirring the doors were long gone by 1977 they had sort of set the stage for gloomy la gothic rock which many people would poo poo at i'm not like the right. big i was once a big doors fan now i'm not so much I, I never really got... I mean, I'm not a huge Doors fan. Yeah. I like many... I, I like, like Sliding Doors. I like Saloon. Uh, yeah. Oh, the band. <laughs> the band. Go ahead. I like the kind that like half opens and you can like sell stuff out of. Horse Doors? <laughs> horse Doors, of horse course. Doors, yeah. Of course, of course. Uh, horse Doors, of course, of course, door, of course, door. But I never understood the anti... Like, I like enough of the Doors to like them yeah. like i can't say i know i know their top tier yeah i know a little bit of their second tier i don't know their full catalog but i would say i know their full catalog because my older brother's really into the doors which was cool 
And they have a lot of... <laughs> and you have to say that or else I'll give you a noogie. Yeah, or else I'm in trouble. We have to acknowledge Jim Morrison is a big dork who'd wear no shirt, leather oh, pants, yeah, and call yeah, himself a poet. Like, that's a big dork he's thing. He's a dork, yeah. Uh, I got yeah well, it. that's why they wanted to be called the dork. <laughs> they have a lot of good songs. It suffers from basic classic rockism where, like, the singing is two minutes and then everyone solos for five minutes. Yeah. It's got that going on. It's where, drug music. It's drug I mean, music. like, the end is unlistenable. Yeah. Unless it's in a movie soundtrack. Yeah, exactly. Uh, unless <laughs> Eek the Cat is parodying Apocalypse Now and you're like, is this a Doors on a kid's cartoon? Um, yeah, unless I'm watching people actively getting PTSD, right. I'm not listening to the end. They, they have their good songs, but yeah, whatever. It doesn't matter. Break on through, Greg. But anyways, the Doors are not a great band but they set the stage for the way the velvet underground in new york sort of who is a great band set the stage for like the punk thing of like we're going to talk about really weird stuff is the velvet underground a great band oh absolutely okay 100 percent. um <laughs> i'm talking about musically oh musically i think Talent, they're, uh, okay. oh absolutely okay. a great band they do i get every single song no do i like every single song no <laughs> the, who's eating the banana <laughs> yeah i can go on forever about the velvet underground yeah. they're fantastic Look, th- we this isn't yet a music podcast it's well on its way sure, but sure, it's sure, not sure. there You're yet right. <laughs> two guys that don't even know that much about music i like to think we know enough to yeah, have a true. conversation except for unless we're taking a jazz midterm and we're in you're yelling at me if it goes past the 80s uh, and it's not oh, just yeah. talking about smash mouth and mark mcgrath uh, we're not gonna know i know that. my share of nirvana and it kind of dies there <laughs> much like nirvana not <laughs> part of nirvana <laughs> maybe the most essential part of nirvana but anyways yeah the doors were like the sort of they sort of set the stage. A lot of people don't like the doors. That's fair. Uh, a and stage I know, door. That's a different type of door. That's very funny. But Iggy Pop himself said there was elements of Jim Morrison on the doors that would be repurposed for punk. Iggy Pop went to a college show to see the doors and Jim Morrison was drunk and singing all the door songs in a girl voice. <laughs> and all the macho frat guys were pissed and threatening to beat Morrison up. And Iggy saw this and thought, this will be my entire personality. It's <laughs> what I'm witnessing right now. What if his shirt was off and he was throwing up? What if he was cutting himself with glass and screaming uh, and all the other band members hated him, which was kind of Jim Morrison. What if this guy grew up to look like a withered cigarette? I could do that. I could do that. You know, I could do that. <laughs> Some consider the doors to be like a proto proto punk thing. Mm-hmm. So that was our proto punk, the way the Velvet Underground. So Ronnie on the Rock was playing newer underground music at the time. Glam fans took the aesthetic of glam and mixed it with hard rock and nihilistic lyrics. And in many large cities, this recipe would produce punk. Sex Pistols, The Clash, the you know, Sex Pistols were T Rex fans, Stooges were Bowie fans, and so on and so on. So I'm just trying to set the stage so, of like what was happening at the time. Ronnie Bingenheimer, who we once saw in a car. You once saw in a car. Yeah, yeah, you were there too. Was I? Yeah, it was you, me, and Melissa. And Melissa said, is that Rodney Bingenheimer? And you said, yeah, that's Rodney Bingenheimer. And I said, who's Rodney Bingenheimer? <laughs> I kind of remember that. I remember being with my brother and his wife, but maybe you're my <laughs> yeah, brother. that's me. Maybe she's my brother. Wait a minute. I'm, Melissa, your I'm your brother. I'm your father. my brother. I'm your brother. <laughs> yeah, Melissa's your brother. Melissa's my brother. Uh, I'm your wife. Yeah, you're my, yeah, I remember perfectly family <laughs> dynamics. So the first LA considered LA punk band, even though there might not be punk, is The Runaways. Okay, Joan That's, Jett. Yeah, Joan Jett. My, my Shri, old Shri. bean, the alumni <laughs> of my same high school, Joan Jett. Granada Hills High School. That's right. Me and jo- it's Joan Jett, John Elway, maybe Robert England, and me. <laughs> We're the Mount Rushmore of my high school. <laughs> and Robert England has the Freddy Krueger on. John Elway's holding a football. Yeah, 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 yeah. Joan Jett's holding a guitar. Yeah. Robert England has the claws, and I'm just, what do I have? I have a- You have a receipt for food? You're speeding a receipt with a restaurant owner right now. It's me calculating a tip. <laughs> I can just give him like 34 cents, right? Like I calculated it. So anyways, yeah. Music scene at the time, punk is starting to just like spit out into the scene. And it is 1970. They, they would spit a lot if I know something about these nasty boys. So the Runaways were the first and then they were followed by the Weirdos, the Screamers, the Plugs, the Dills, and the Controllers. Refer- like that's sort of the, like many consider to be the first punk bands in LA. Like true punk, punk. 
no okay. other the like punkiest names I've ever heard. The, also, kind of, yeah. <laughs> Writing them down, I'm like, oh geez, I have to say this to Daniel. <laughs> He's gonna tighten his tie when he hears these. But where were all these up and coming bands rehearsing, or where were they party and play, or where were they go and get completely trashed? So in June of 1977, which is like the year that punk happens, 1977, and okay. disco and like hip hop is like first happening in I'm telling you, what a great year and Star Wars happened. Star Wars happens. Which was the punk of movies. Alvis dies that year too. So like passing the torch from like one Mm. gyrating person to like people who will full out bring a dong out in the show and you're like, Jim, come on, put it away. I'm just glad Elvis could pass something in that year. (laughs) Brennan Molin, 1977 June, finds a 10,000 square foot basement at 1655 North Cherokee Avenue. It's the basement of the Pussycat Theater, which is like a porno theater. As seen in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Exactly. Uh, Right around the corner. It's it's like Dead on straight across the street. Cherokee is where Larry Edmonds shop is, I'm pretty sure. And okay. then Moose and Franks is just right there. It's a stone's throw away. Okay. A it's Rolling Stones. A throw Rolling away. Stones throw away. That's where this basement was on Cherokee Avenue. What a in weird the thing of like the squeakies or whatever <laughs> are playing in the basement of this place. And then across the street is like Bob Hope exactly. having dinner with Cary Grant <laughs> at the Moose and Franks. Larry Edmonds, Polly Platt, and Bagdonovich are writing scripts for money while they're <laughs> up and coming and downstairs. <laughs> the Dills. <laughs> This space was underground, so whoever was playing in the many rooms down there could play really loud. Mm. And it was described as feeling like a labyrinth with winding hallways running from the central concert area to rehearsal rooms where stained carpet scraps were tacked up to the walls for acoustic insulation. <laughs> I thought I thought it was like Hall of Fame <laughs> of like, this is where... Yeah, this is a pee stain from a, <laughs> yeah, is t- a Cherie Curie's pee stain right here. <laughs> this is X's blood. <laughs> so Mullen got a month's free rent in exchange for clearing out 15 years of debris from the last occupant, <laughs> which was the Don Martin School of Radio and Broadcasting, which operated in the 40s. According to Mullen, the building itself was historic, the Hollywood Center building that had gone up in 1923 thanks to Cecil B. DeMille, who had five-story headquarters built right on Hollywood Boulevard, and that complex was his. And it gets, you know, cut up and distributed and then sold and blah, blah, blah. A beautiful tale of Los Angeles history being passed down, not unlike that old building on Hollywood now becoming the Taco Bell Cantina. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) A rich history. A rich history. We have it any day now. This underground punk club's gonna be a subway. <laughs> Emphasis on sub, and this one's still gonna have a bunch of Jared posters on it. It's an edgy subway. It's they un- still it's underground. Jared. What the cops are gonna come down here for Mullen? The space would cost eight hundred and fifty dollars a month, which was very reasonable for nineteen seventy seven Hollywood Boulevard. Mullen would put an ad space out in the recycler, advertising music rooms to rehearse in for two dollars an hour. With the basement of the place cleared out, it was ready for bands to start. Quote unquote rehearsing. <laughs> Someone came into his life at just the right point who was a man named Al Hansen and a conceptual artist who had both worked with Yoko Ono and John Cage and John Cage knew Brendan which may be how the two of them met Al Hansen. He had a pretty prolific life in the arts before moving to LA in the mid 70s with his daughter. His daughter was BB Hansen. BB was like just the right age to kind of start hanging out with these like young punk people. BB was one of the a dozen like Warhol protégés you'd seen photos with like Edie Sedgwick like she was clearly like art cool scene star. Nico. Kind of like a Nico, yeah. Bring it back to the Velvet Underground. Yeah. The banana people. The banana people. No, the banana band. With a banana <laughs> they album. banana boat, yeah. right? <laughs> They're the bananas in pajamas. PB was a performance artist and music and scene star. She'd hang around the mask when it was a rehearsal space to watch bands practice and kind of hang out. And sometimes she'd bring her eight-year-old son with her, Beck Hansen, who we know as Beck. Wait a minute. 
Beck, like Beck, like like the performer. Like I'm artist. a loser, baby. Yeah, Beck, Beck. Beck. Weird. Weird, weird. So Beck is a nepo baby. I mean, like he's more famous than his his mother and grandfather. <laughs> Doesn't matter if you're born into <laughs> nepo. You're a ne- once a nepo baby, always always a nepo, a nepo baby. baby. She wasn't like in a punk band, and it's like I'm going to teach my son everything I know. She was just kind of like hanging around, and then her That's son saw stuff. It's like so this weird. Is great. Musical Wes Anderson Beck. <laughs> Musical Wes Anderson. Yeah. So Beck would hang around the mask huh. as a kid and be like, "What is Beck all is of from this? L.A.? Yeah." Oh, well, that's good to know. Uh, isn't it nice, it to, know? Is nice yeah. to know? Another, yeah, he could be on the, he could be the triple bill with uh, David Lee Roth, Richie Valens, and Beck. <laughs> we offer all kinds of- A little bit of something for everyone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Snoop Dogg's up there. Yes. While Al Hansen and Brendan were looking at this new rehearsing space, members of the band, the controllers came by looking for a rehearsal space to rent where they could play really loud. And this was just the place because it's underground. Nobody upstairs can hear us play. <laughs> this would be a perfect space for them. And with that, two things happened. The controllers became the first band in the mask and Al Hansen would meet them and end up being their manager. Jessa Gideon, also known as Jessa X, who's a well-known producer in the punk world, traded free room, meaning the floor of a recording studio, for running sound for the new space. Following the controllers were the Berlin Brats, Backstage Pass, and the Motels. And then the party started soon after this. And when they would run all night. Like the parties there were like 24-7 and uh, Egg Scene from X says like we never knew when a show was starting or a band was playing or a party was happening or a party would turn mm-hmm. into a rehearsal would turn into a show. Like it was just like one big cloud mm-hmm. of hanging out. <laughs> so hanging out one day with the controllers and the skulls and El Hansen, Brendan and the boys were kicking around names for the space and they had a long list. The Pit and the Pendulum, The Toilet, Winker's Disco, The Hellhole, Slimerama, The Puke Bowl, <laughs> All bad names. All stupid bad no, this punk names. fits for punk. All bad, dumb 70s punk names. Also on the list was The Mask, M-A-S-Q-U-E. And that name is also horrible. And The Mask was such a bad name that Al Hansen kept pointing out how bad it was. This is a direct quote from Brendan Mullen. Since I have a major contrarian reaction to authority, any authority, like some psychological <laughs> allergy to do with my father, Al saying this was like waving a red flag. The more he bad rapped the name, the more contrarian I'd react. I said the dictionary definition of mask was a form of cheap amateur histrionic medieval entertainment. Finally, Al stormed out in disgust saying, where's the punk meaning in that name? <laughs> and so mask it was, literally because an older man in his early 50s seemed to be telling me what to do. And as fate would have it, I never saw Al the Jewish art leprechaun again. Oh, what? <laughs> and I read that, I'm like, oh boy. And as he signed off every statement he gave, Heil Hitler. <laughs> There's nothing more punk than the French language, is there, Greg? There really isn't. Like, the French really get it. I mean, they're so punk, they chop the heads off of everybody in their government. <laughs> I was telling somebody at work this, but I I remember being in high school history and we're learning about the French Revolution, which I was very interested in because (laughs) there's just like another heads. And I remember asking, like, how does it fall apart? Like, or does it work or does it not work? Like, what what happens? And I think that Miss McGee said, you can't just chop off everyone's head. And I, that always makes me laugh. To oh, about. can't you, Miss McGee? And they certainly and tried. Ch- chopped off Miss <laughs> McGee's head. Getting the guillotine. <laughs> Miss McGee. She's putting down, yeah, Miss McGee. She's putting down the French Revolution. We got to cut her head off. <laughs> but you know what the punishment for that is. <laughs> so the mask quickly established itself as a 24 hour punk party place. Practices, like I said, morphed into shows with people already hanging out there, becoming into the audience. It was at the time no cover open door BYO parties until the weirdos asked. Weirdos are a pretty good band. They asked, like, why do we have to play for free? <laughs> 
And then Brendan was like, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't mean to be too not punk about this, <laughs> yeah. but are, do we have like a health plan? Yeah. Or? <laughs> My teeth hurt. Can we like do something about that? Meaning the first official hired band paid gig was probably the weirdos being like, we need money. <laughs> weirdos known for popular song. We got the neutron bomb, but check out Hey Big Oil, The Hideout, and they cover, you know, Link Ray's Fatback, all great songs. So cover charge for the band for most shows ended up being 250, which is why would you make it 250? Like, do you love counting chain? Do you like have an abundance of quarters? It's like the El Monte thing of yeah. 350 for the bigger name shows. Like, yeah, why? Why do you want put quarters in this? Mess? And look, this comes back to me calculating tipping. Just round things up. Yeah, round like, things up. Make, bake it all into the price. Make it a round number. Don't make me deal with how very European decimal of points. you. Well, you know, I spent a long time in France, the, the most, most punk, punk country. of countries. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little bit punk. I believe in not having to calculate tips <laughs> and also decapitating anyone who a- has friends. Anyone who questions me. Uh, <laughs> she hates quarters, cut her head off. <laughs> Unless like 250, it's easier. I have a $5 bill, you and my, and it just adds oh, yeah. people to the- But then that's not very punk to assume you're going to have a date. That's true. I mean, punk people are notoriously undateable. Yeah. Yeah. Undateable people who sneak into the bathroom to shows. But then it dawned on me as I was reading it, like, I'm pretty sure no one paid to get in. I'm pretty sure like 250, oh yeah, let me go grab that. They just like yeah. went through the sewers and found a different <laughs> way in. Paul Collins of the great power pop band, The Nerves, who I think had already broken up at this time, or I think they broke up at The Mask, he ended up running the door. And from there, the underground rehearsal space started becoming the scene. It went from 50 people consistently to about 70 to 100. As John Dove X says, by the end of 1977, when the Whiskey A Go-Go had 10 people at their club, the mask would have 200 people. To compensate, the Whiskey would start booking bands from the mask to attempt to get that mm. crowd to go to the Whiskey, and the punk scene in LA grows from there. Like, suddenly the bands are playing right. two places, and then suddenly they're playing three they places. Got poached. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But the mask was special because, as opposed to the Whiskey, which was an official venue, the mask was a party pad that just happened to have bands playing at it. Nine or ten bands would be booked, and shows would go all night, which is crazy. This is similar to the place I'm going to be talking oh, about, yeah? but a different genre of music. Sure, of yeah. The, you know, it was too good to contain. Sure, yeah, 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 yeah. It starts bleeding out everywhere. <laughs> and then you have to put that strip of carpet up on the wall. <laughs> Much like Iggy Pop, it was bleeding out it everywhere. It was kind of bleeding everywhere, <laughs> and somehow he's got more power now. The walls were covered in graffiti, and that happened like really- By the way, if anybody's a Cenobite, it's Iggy Pop. Oh, sure. Oh, <laughs> Absolutely, 100% living Cenobite. So the walls of the mask were really quickly covered in graffiti of either bad names or corny punk phrases. But there was also graffiti that read, the mask welcomes nobody. Your mother is calling you wimp, go home. Hippies go home. Hippies suck. All fun stuff. All great. This is everything I, all the caricatures I have in my head of punk is this. Unfortunately, all true. People were drinking and getting high or having sex in the corners of the bathroom. It was underground. So for the yep, most part- This is all checking out in my head. So for the most part, the cops had- for a while, had no idea this was <laughs> going on. They can't find it. They can't. It's underground. I, I can hear it, but I don't know where it's coming from. <laughs> the cops had no idea there was even a human right they weren't being able to violate. Uh, the mask happened quite early in the history of LA punk, so the crowd of teenagers that were showing up would go off and form their own bands and become close friends because of this subterranean scene. Members of X, the Go-Go's, the Germs, the Bags, the Cramps are all mingling together and meeting for the first time at the mask. Yeah, that's another, the, who is it, Belinda Carlisle? Carlisle yeah. She yeah. can also be playing with... David Lee Roth, sure. Richie Valens, Beck, and Belinda Carlisle. And Belinda Carlisle yeah. is the Oh, Joan Jett, too. She can be there. She can be there. Yeah, John Elway can toss a football around. Robert England can come and show off his claws. Yeah. And I'll go up on stage and calculate a tip. <laughs> <laughs> I'm counting numbers from on stage. Uh, when punk bands came from out of town, the mask was where the spot that they had to hit. Three of the four sex pistols visited the girls at the mask, uh, whatever that means, while Johnny Rodden hung around the height with his mother. Um <laughs> 
And the book makes fun of him so hard. Like, he wouldn't come out. He's hanging out with his mom. In a world where punk reigns supreme, hanging out with your mom is the most punk it's thing. It's kind you of do. the most punk thing you could do. Yeah. And as we mentioned in our magazine episode, Claude Bessie of Slash Magazine was mm. one of the guys hanging around the mask and ready to document this truly special thing happening in the punk youth of LA. Seamsters would meet at the mask, party together, become chummy, and then they would all find a place together. And then that would be an additional punk party pad. Like, this is where Brendan Mullen says somewhere, like, I didn't, we didn't create punk or this wasn't the first place punk happened but like this is where all the characters would meet each other basically <laughs> in the early years the most famous of the mask shows happened on labor day weekend in 1977 when the newly formed germs darby crashed lorna doom who's white girl the ex's song white girl pat smear later of nirvana and foo fighters and cliffhanger which is the drummer's name later be replaced by don bowles who would did i tell you that we knew the drummer from the germs yeah, I think you've mentioned that. Okay, that we rented that space on like Slauson and Soto when we were interning for the record company and upstairs was Don Bowles and it was like, oh crap, that's Don Bowles from the Germs. And it became, oh crap, it's Don Bowles from the Germs. We got to get out of here because he'll talk to us forever. <laughs> we got to go. We got to hide behind the bushes. He won't stop talking about the stinky peas. <laughs> uh, I also like to mention very briefly that Belinda Carlisle of the Go-Go's drummed for the Germs for like three nights. Hmm. The Germs didn't play especially well, but like the Ramones, they, they were the right kind of chaotic and charming. And because of the show, they, they had a show like a punk show at the Orpheum and they kind of debuted there they had created a lot of buzz around themselves and that allowed them to pack the mask with a crowd like a legitimate like crowd of people that like to see them would you describe the Ramones as charming absolutely the germs are cool, but I'm, you know, I'm like kind of a fan, you know, because Darby dies really young. They don't have like the versatility. Like if you think of X or the Minutemen, we're like, oh, they have like a, a big sound. Uh, like they're very different. Or X becomes the knitters and like they can do anything. The germs are kind of like, well, they're they're bad. <laughs> Their bad songs are pretty good sometimes, but they're they're like not a good band. <laughs> I, I remember buying a tape. There's a great record store on Melrose called Tang Records and you had to go down a long, dark hallway to get to it. It was like behind all the storefronts. It's a great like little record store that's gone now. But I bought a germs tape, like germs live and I was like, oh man, I can't wait to watch it. And they're one of the worst bands I've ever seen perform live. <laughs> I can't wait to work under this guy. Yeah. <laughs> the Germs, one of the bigger LA punk bands, have a cult-like fan base, small but devoted. And Darby Crash is an interesting character in LA history, not just music history, both music and social. And we'll talk about him in a punk episode, but he, if he could have lived longer, he might've been L. Ron Hubbard. Uh, there's something called a Germs <laughs> burn, which is just a cigarette burn, but their logo- I've heard of that. Yeah, the big logo is a big blue circle and fans would- Burn themselves. Burn themselves and, yeah. and be like, I'm a Germs fan. And you're like, oh, Okay. <laughs> All right. It should also be said around this time, 1977 in LA, two maniacs, Kenneth Bianchi and Angela Bono, known as the Hillside Strangers, abducted, tortured, and murdered a mask regular. Oh, God. Evelyn Jane King. The last time she was seen by some people was at a Halloween party at the mask. She was picked up by the Hillside Stranglers at a bus stop outside of the Scientology Celebrity Center in Franklin. And as was their MO, they were pretending to be cops and picked her up and killed her. Do you think that they were punk fans? No, I think uh, that they only had one interest. <laughs> I don't think that they cared about music very much, uh, other than just playing it loud so you wouldn't hear people scream from their mechanic shop. While investigating, two LAPD homicide detectives went undercover as art dealers and followed Billy Bones of the band The Skulls back to the mask under the guise of wanting to invest in a punk band. And Brendan Mullen sniffed these two cops out real quick and pulled them aside and just frankly said like, if a single person from the mask knew anything, one tiny shard that could help them, they'd be calling the cops in a hot second, which is a correct reaction to have during the serial killers, like a reign of terror to be like, okay, cops are okay. 
right now. <laughs> like these are homicide detectives and one of ours got killed. I'm looking to buy a punk band. Yeah. <laughs> one punk band, please. <laughs> Brendan didn't know every single person that came into the mask. What if the killer was among them? There's no way to tell. So Brendan went on to hire a 350 pound, six foot tall security guard named Tiny Rosen to whoa, keep whoa. an eye on the mask. Oh, uh, okay. I, I think that that's just a, a common. Oh, okay. I've got another bodyguard coming with that. I thought, oh, really? I, well, imagine if it was the same guy, but it's not. I feel like many large yeah, people are called yeah. Tiny is a cute thing. That doesn't make sense. But Greg, they're big. That's, yeah, this, this is a little too punk for me. <laughs> Opposites. I don't understand this at all. The murder of Jane King had really rattled Brendan. And even though she was picked up somewhere else, he had a sense of guilt. And that fear when death gets close to you kind of touched him. He parted less and began taking more responsibility for his space. Brendan would have tiny walk girls to their cars, which is great. Tiny was great at communicating with the cops. And he became a celebrity at the mask, which is really weird. And I like that. But do you think a bunch of like anti-authority punks would resist, but they actually embrace the security guard? Like, please keep us safe. <laughs> There's somebody who is killed. Women, please keep we're our all safe. talk. Yeah, we're all talk. Please protect us. In 1978, the mask was temporarily closed down by the cops for a failure to secure an entertainment cabaret license. And he was already getting into it with the landlord and city hall. And he was consciously avoiding using the term club because he did not have a club like an <laughs> entertainment license. It's a rehearsal space. It's a rehearsal space. Exactly. It's a cabaret show. And they were ready to shut him down because he was converted one space is uses to be something else. And they already didn't like the scene that was happening. So they're just trying to find any way to shut him down. He started looking for another place to potentially operate the city or the cops shut the mask down. In the meantime, a fundraising show was planned to put money together for Brendan's troubles. It was said to reopen the mask, it would cost Brendan $10,000. So all these teenagers who hate money. <laughs> They're going to have to together. bump it up to two seventy-five dollars <laughs> a show. So in February 1978, at the Elks Lodge in 99, or some call it the MacArthur, which is the beautiful Art Deco building right next to MacArthur Park. The one that used to be like Harrison Gray Otis's house? Yeah, or? I think so. Okay. It's on the same side as the, the statue. Okay. It's on yeah. it's on that small side street right there. Right. That place. I, I don't know how they pulled that off, but they were able to have two... Well, Harrison Gray Otis loved punk. He loved... Hated unions, but he loved He punk. loved <laughs> a Hard, Fast, and Loud. He was a big fan of that genre of music. He loved listening to the Rotten Banana Peels. He loved them. So they had two nights of punk shows for a fundraiser. Eight bands were on that build, including the Screamers, which are a great band, the Bags, great band, the Deadbeats, I don't know them. The Zeros have one great song. The Germs, the Weirdos, F-Word, and the Skulls. Tickets were $5. Uh, they had another benefit at Lazaro's Ballroom on Vermont in April featuring the Dills. Ooh, the Bags. Ooh, X. Ooh, la la. And Low Life. I don't know them. <laughs> yeah, well, I've seen X live. Yeah. I won $2 at that show. Not a big deal. <laughs> I bet on who would win in a race between a horse and X. And, uh, I won $3. So. I won $3. I'm not going to say who won, but the horse is pretty strong. <laughs> not going to say who won, but they had to guillotine the horse. <laughs> None of these shows helped Mullen in the long run. And the original mask ran until 1978 when the fire marshal finally had the place closed down thanks to the landlord getting fed up and ending the lease. And the many violations the club cited were enough to finish it off. I was going to ask, like, there's no way this place was up to code. Like, no, this, uh, like if And this has happened where, like, a fire breaks out at a club oh, like yeah. Yeah. this and everyone dies. There's subterranean. There's one exit. Yeah. The fire marshal's very mad. So in January of 1979, the mask closed for good thanks to the fire marshal. Mullen had to find a new space for the, what he calls the other mask. And he also calls it the new mask. He also calls it the second mask. <laughs> the son of mask. Yeah, son of mask. Yeah. <laughs> Jamie Kennedy joke. The other <laughs> mask opened at Santa Monica and Vine. Not sure where. And although people showed up, the pissed carpets just weren't the same. <laughs> 
Did someone shampoo these? <laughs> I joke, but this place was much nicer and offered more to musicians as far as sound and space. But by 1979, the second wave of punk creeped in, which was much harder, faster, and louder than the last. And the opening night of the other mask didn't seem to have any of those old bands that you'd find at the mask. In March of 1979, just to show you what was happening at the time, there was like a, almost like a rockabilly old rock revival and Brendan was sort of into that. So the opening night of the new mask had a lot of those bands. Where were the other bands? Well, in March of 1979, also at the Elks Lodge 99, the lineup was the Go-Go's, cute, the Plugs, pretty cool, the Alley Cats, I like them, the Zeros, and X. X never got to go on. There was said to be a riot, but as Jane Whelan of the Go-Go's puts it, cops came in and just started attacking everybody, <laughs> including members of Black Flag, X, and the Go-Go's. This was known as the St. Patrick's Day Massacre. Basically, cops just stormed the place and started beating everybody up, which I, I believe it. Hardcore punk from the OC like Black Flag played, you know, incredibly fast, incredibly hard than anybody in the first Alley Punk, and Alley Punks did not really care for it, so the scene started at this point dividing in a lot of different ways. Also, heroin entered the scene, so like, the cute little scene that was happening underground started to splinter off in so many other different directions. The Black Flag had their own space known as the church, which was actually an abandoned church in Hermosa Beach, uh, where like all those hardcore OC bands would start playing. That place got popular just as the other mask closed down in like 1979. Brendan Mullen kept the spirit of the mask going through concerts titled Mask Presents, and that kept things going for a while. After the other mask closed down, he failed to get the original mask open. Mullen worked for Club Lingerie, where he booked bands of a lot of different genres like pop punk, jazz, and blues. Brendan Mullen continued working in all music for the rest of his life. He helped assemble the fantastic oral history of Alley Punk, which called We Got the Neutron Bomb, the untold story of Alley Punk, which is what I read when I was a teenager, and I thought this was the coolest thing, <laughs> and it'll never happen again, and then I found out the smell, and I never went again. <laughs> he died in 2009, but left a strong legacy on Alley music history. As he said, he didn't invent Alley Punk, the mask, and Mullen are only a small piece of the puzzle, but without it, the music scene in Alley looks wildly different without the mask. Well, I mean... Who doesn't without the mask? Without the mask, yeah. Um, Jim Carrey. I get movie references. The mask was where all the- Suddenly, they could all sing Cuban Pete. And this is one Pachuco that the cops aren't going to try to beat up? <laughs> well, he's green. He's green. I'm, I'm scared of him. Exine Cervenka of X said, When X played at the mask, I loved the blur between the band and the crowd, taking my turn jumping around in the mix of friends and weirdos and then back into the band. We were a vortex, a vacuum, an underground scene so secret and beautiful, it was hard to believe it was really happening. Yeah, that's basically, if you want to see the mask in person, or <laughs> I, I think Atlas Obscure has a way on their website of how to see the mask if you really want to go there. But if you want to see it in, or the church in documentaries, the client of Western civilization you see the mask in x's fantastic documentary the unheard music you meet brendan mullen and you see the mask a little bit like i think it goes five years after it closed down kind of takes a peek and also check out we jam a condo the story of the minutemen's documentary what is it? we jam a condo we jam econo like economically but oh. econo being short the minutemen documentary it's not i didn't talk about the minutemen enough but they're a perfect band from la from san pedro and uh, they have a great documentary they are from they're from LA? Uh yeah, the Minutemen are from San Pedro. They're they're kind of Johnny Come Lately's, I think, to the first wave. They're like second wave, but one of the best things that we've ever spit out of our of our little town. <laughs> our little San Pedro. Of our little San Pedro of one of the best bands out of LA is ever is the Minutemen. Well, what's more punk than showing up late to the punk scene? Being shy. Being, being shy, shy and being like, what are they doing? <laughs> Us too, but only for a minute. <laughs> now that now that we've gotten that we're over that punk phase we were going through. Let's get back to something a little more wholesome oh god don't come at me with wholesome <laughs> i know what those people do they like their trucks they like their trucks they like their truck nuts <laughs> i like the american flag trucks. <laughs> and i like my american flag nuts <laughs> <laughs> so cue the fiddles call dolly parton and do not call ted nugent <laughs> because it's time to talk some country oh boy in particular the legendary the hillbilly 
The Gone But Not Forgotten. The Palomino. Oh boy, that's a horse. That's the kind of horse you bet on against X. (laughs) The age old question. (laughs) When X runs across a horse track, (laughs) do both their legs leave the ground? (laughs) So let's take a step back to fall into the sinkhole of something I touched on in my last story, the popularity of country music in LA during the 40s. Okay. So we talked a little bit about the, you you don't, you would never, because we used to do comedy at a place that sounded like the Palomino. It it was certainly not the Palomino. It it was Paladino's. I remember when my mom first moved here, passing it off a receipt of Paladino's and Mm -hmm. swearing it had a different name. Yeah. This is just a, a place that kind of is in the ether, I guess. Okay. And it's one of those stories of like this couldn't have happened in North Hollywood, yeah. but it did. <laughs> Unfortunately, it, it did. Unfortunately for us, it did. Yeah. Like I said, we're going to touch again on uh, something I mentioned in the last story in this episode, the popularity of country music in LA during the 40s, Okay. in particular, in my beloved, the legendary, the hillbilly, the never gone and never forgotten the San Fernando Valley. Oh my God. Columbo's town. And the- <laughs> oh, just one more thing. Just, uh, just one more thing. If you're a country club, then how come you had Green Day? <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's no lemons on that tree. Uh, you said you eat lemons. There's no lemons. Guilty. I'm cutting your head off because I'm... <laughs> Death by guillotine. <laughs> uh, one more thing. One more thing. One more thing. Death by guillotine. Don't bother washing your neck today. <laughs> So in the 30s and 40s, a lot of movies were being made in the Valley. So a lot of people who worked on movies lived in the Valley. Makes sense. One of the most popular types of movies in the 30s and 40s were Westerns. Hey, you you got it. (laughs) Saloon doors kick open. I don't know the sound for that. Uh, Ow. So that's someone standing behind the saloon door being kicked open. (laughs) There should be a country tribute band of the doors called the Saloon Doors. Go ahead. And they only play at Knott's Berry Farm. <laughs> so Westerns. We're talking Westerns. Yes. So that meant that a lot of stunt people were around for all the horse and cowboy stuff. And after a long day of pretending to be John Wayne falling off of a horse, these guys needed a place to go get a drink. So around this time, a place called the Mule Kick Club That's opened. That's a great name. At 6907 Lancashire in what is now North Hollywood. Okay. Uh, here's another sound effect from the Western days. Get me my coffee, partner. That's good. That's John Wayne. That's very good, John Wayne. That's John Wayne abusing an intern. (laughs) Here's another Western sound effect, and it's just like two minutes of me being racist. (laughs) Here's another Western sound effect. I can hire this Italian guy (laughs) to play a Native American, because I'll be damned if I hire anybody with brown skin. That was one of the Warner Brothers (laughs) talking. So this area that the Mule Kick Club, yeah. what I mean, it conveys so many things that could be happening. Is the mule kicking you? Are you kicking the mule? Is this like a cow tipping yeah, thing? Yeah. Is the mule kicking a can? Like, well, I don't, a tin can, which is very cowboy. Yeah. I don't know what it conveys, but it conveys cowboy. It's giving cowboy, it's, Greg. It's giving it's cowboy. Giving cow- Even though everybody uses mules, it's giving cowboy specifically. <laughs> On all of my TikTok videos where I've shown off my new dusters, <laughs> all of the kids are saying, it's giving cowboy. It's giving, yeah. My Betsy Johnson Spurs. Th- this is my new John Wayne impression. It's giving partner. That's my TikTok John Wayne impression. I bet there's a Western where they're talking about a bridge that's about to collapse and like, it's given and we can just cut that. (laughs) This will be the new, those few seconds of how bizarre that people were using for a while. It's John Wayne saying it's giving. I didn't realize. (laughs) It's given. (laughs) I didn't realize that how bizarre was starting to come back from the grave. 
and it played one day and I had such a visceral reaction to hearing it after 20 years of like, get this song off the radio. <laughs> My Generation's Hotel California. <laughs> it's how bizarre. So this area that the Mule Kick Club was in, this part of Lancaster, which is like borderline Sunbat, like really North North do, Hollywood. Do you know it's Cross Street? Uh, I don't know. The, it's kind of near where like the plane's just about to land into okay. Burbank. Like I drove by it recently to look at it okay. as I was doing the research for this, but it's like really high up, far up Lancashire, okay. like really far north. Greg, like North Pole, like North Hollywood Santa Claus lives here. <laughs> this is where he gets drunk. Because Santa Claus famously a cowboy. It takes his Santa hat off, cowboy hat on. Yeah. It's given Christmas, partner. <laughs> so this area was chosen because it was a neighborhood where a lot of these guys, these stunt people, these cowboy yeah. people from Warner Brothers and Universal lived because of its proximity to the movie studios. Right. So you've got your stuntmen, background actors, and just general behind-the-scenes people going to this cowboy-themed bar because that's what a lot of these guys were like. They were country boys. Oh, okay. I was just about to make like, dude, you're off the clock. You don't have to stay no, a cowboy, yeah, it, but they are cowboy. You're right. That they're- it's not like, I'm here from New Jersey, and I just want to be in pictures and I want to be a method cowboy. No, like these were country Country boys. These were cowboy folk who came to work in movies. It was open seven days a week and they'd open the doors at 6 a.m. every day with a happy hour from 8 to 10 a.m. because that's when a lot of these movie people were getting off work. So they'd immediately get off work and get like cocktail franks and a bunch of beers at this place in North Hollywood. Like my grandma getting off a graveyard shift and getting drunk in a sheriff deputy van. Yeah. (laughs) Like that. It's exactly it's like exactly that. like that. <laughs> For whatever reason, this most likely sad place closed in nineteen forty nine, but it didn't take long before the abandoned building was noticed by a guy called Hank Penny. And guess what, Greg? My baby does the Hanky Penny. I was waiting for that. (laughs) So Hank Penny was a country musician from Birmingham, Alabama, who played banjo as a kid and worked in radio stations as a teen in the South and the Midwest before he ended up in L.A. post-World War, let's just say, between one and three, where he started playing music on some TV shows like The Spade Cooley Show Mm -hmm. and live from El Monte, it's the Hometown Jamboree. Look at that. He played on that. A Spade Cooley is a tragic story that happens in, uh, like, I think, Palmdale or something like that. For some reason, I want to say he was murdered with a... A shovel, but I'm thinking that's because his name was Spade. Maybe, yeah. You don't. Well, it's a posthumous name. Yeah. Everybody's renamed after they die, after they die which is yeah. why someday I'm going to be renamed Trenchfoot Zaffron. Diarrhea to death, Daniel. <laughs> it's giving diarrhea. <laughs> that's what the doctor says about yeah. me when. About know. the mess you leave on a gurney after you die. <laughs> when I die live on TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> it's giving. It's giving. It's giving. Gone. That's also, that's going to be how baseball announcers also announce yeah, home runs. it's giving, soon. it's giving, it's gone. <laughs> so as we know, around this time in the late 40s, country music was pretty popular, even in LA. Busloads of Southerners and Midwesterners were piling into LA after the war, much like, like the darlings in Andy Green, just like <laughs> stacked on top of it. They're coming in. You, What's that sound? You hear banjo picking and jug blowing. Oh God, it's the Beverly Hillbillies are back. Oh no, we need more housing. <laughs> So all these people, they're piling into L.A. after the war because in L.A. there were relatively high paying aerospace and defense jobs in town. And what do hillbillies from Iowa love more than aerospace jobs? And they brought with them not only their corncob pipes, but also their love of country music. Sure, so sure, all sure. these new people coming to L.A., they brought a new taste right. for music. Country music clubs started popping up around the city, but Penny saw a void in the market of places to hear live music in the valley. Right. Then one day he passed by the the 
old boarded up mule kick club, which he described as looking like death warmed over. And he realized this could be his little slice of death warmed over. <laughs> that sentence you just said is so what I think of the valley. If you just go say the whole sentence again, sorry, <laughs> I, not to repeat too much. You can cut this out later, but it's so valley. And then one day. He passed by the old boarded up mule kick club. <laughs> exactly. Which, which he described as looking like death warmed over. <laughs> that said should be the slogan for it. You're now entering San Fernando Valley. You're a little slice of death warmed over. I just quoted the narration of what they're saying when you're going up Splash Mountain. <laughs> you're about to find your own little slice of death warmed over. Uh, so this place could be just the place he felt the valley needed. He and a guy named Amand Gautier bought the place, and which is not a very country name. No. You need a cowboy that name. I need Amanda Gautier. Is this funny? They bought the place, the two of them, and they restored it to its old cowboy saloon glory, complete with a nice big stage. And they were ready to reopen to the public. But what to name it? The legend is that a stunt guy rode his Palomino horse to the place one day, so they decided to name it the Palomino. But that doesn't make sense. A, because... Why would they already open without having a name? Sure. And B, that seemed to have happened literally every day there. So what's the big yeah, what's, deal? Yeah, like exactly. Like a horse. It, it would be weird if someone drove a car to the Palomino. <laughs> I was going to say like, was it like a dirt path at the time? Or was it like- <laughs> I mean, North Hollywood. It's the, f- yeah. North Hollywood in the late 40s. It very well could have been a dirt Literally like wagon wheels everywhere. <laughs> so- Horses running wild. The, there was more horse than man back then. <laughs> the real story seems to be that while they were coming up with the names Penny bought a new shirt and saw the brand on it palomino polo shirt okay. and he said let's just go with that so yeah, that's so again it's, it's copyright infringement is yeah. the story here that's why they call it the polo shirt greg yeah. you were stealing my joke <laughs> so began the world famous palomino polo shirt club <laughs> the world famous palomino club complete with their big famous neon sign made right here in glendale oh all cowboys had to take off their hats when they entered and once inside they were treated to alcohol steaks and cheese bread which they were apparently famous for and of course the music. That's a fiddle. And there's uh, wagon wheels nailed to the walls for decoration. Bales of hay. There's a picture of Ronald Reagan for some reason, <laughs> even though he hasn't even come yeah, yet. Yeah, he's an actor at the time. He's the an actor. actor. The actor. The, the president. <laughs> Penny used his connections to get country music acts to come play there, but by 1952, his career as a musician himself was taking over, so it was time to get out of the club business. So he sold the place to a couple of bros, literally. (laughs) Billy and Thomas Thomas, or Tommy as he went by. (laughs) The first name or last name is Tommy. Billy, Tommy, and Tommy, Tommy. (laughs) Billy and Tommy Thomas were sons of a Croatian immigrant and his mail-order bride, which is how their mom was described. I mean, like, everything was mail-order back then, so. (laughs) Uh, They were also mail order sons because that's <laughs> the stork, obviously. Obviously. They were born in Chicago and lived above the club that their dad owned, the Thomas Lounge. The brothers eventually made their way out to LA with the intent of opening up some clubs of their own, and they ended up stumbling upon the Palomino and leased it from the person who bought it from Penny with the intention of running it for a year and then moving on. However, the owner got in a bad car accident and needed money fast, so he ended up selling the place to the Thomas brothers for cheap, and they ended up running it literally for the rest of their lives. Oh, wow, okay. Which would not be much longer. Uh, (laughs) Now the focus of the Palomino in this era really became what it is now legendary for, which was the music. Mm -hmm. Tommy seems to have been the guiding force behind that, or at least that's how history has chosen to remember this place. And he actually wasn't even 
a music fan. Like he just knew how to do publicity and had a ton of ads and gave out free tickets to people to come see shows there. And he knew to book musicians that people would come to see. And he'd take tips from the customers and staff there to book people that were going to pack them full to their 264 person capacity that Tommy bribed the fire department with raw meat to ignore. Oh, okay. Uh, last part is great. Um, <laughs> By the way, the, the fire department back then was just Dalmatians. <laughs> it was a long time before North Hollywood hired actual humans to be fire people. The uh, fire truck was actually the most flammable thing in the, in the area. Uh, how do you feel about people who run successful clubs who aren't fans of what their club... If I were a club or owner who loved music and cared, I would be frustrated. Right. It, but because you're a little bit detached and you're just like doing numbers of like, this is the most popular band if we put them on the bill. Yeah, it's money music. It's money music. <laughs> I almost feel like that works sometimes a little bit better because it's so detached as opposed to like, like Quentin Tarantino running the New Beverly and running his favorite movies. It yeah. sort of feels like you're missing out on a lot of really great <laughs> stuff right now because we're just picking Quentin's top 10 feet picks. <laughs> we could be watching Avatar are too, but yeah. instead we're watching Le Garçon and Le Foot or whatever he wants to see. I don't care because I wasn't around yeah. and I wasn't running a, com- a co- like I said, if I was running a competing club and I was like, but I really love yeah. the, I would be very angry. Yeah. I, if I was his competition, I would be very angry. Yeah. Okay. So now let's finally get into the music that was going on at this place because that's where the legends come from here at the PAL, as it was known. Because of Tommy's efforts and it being nearby the studios and being the only place in the valley to see live country music and let us not dismiss the running start old hanky penny gave the place with his country music bona fides this place became one of the top two places in la at the time to perform if you did country and a few years later in 1959 when their main competitor the riverside rancho and los files closed the palomino became not just the number one place in la to see country music they became the number one place on the west coast wow. to see country music really in north hollywood this is because of and why there was live music here by the following people over the years. Okay, here, here comes the them. list. I'm going to make a lot of sounds. Speaking of Richie Valens, Waylon Jennings, Ooh. Willie Nelson, Great. Glenn Campbell, cool. Dwight Yoakam, Emmy Lou Harris, Chris cool. Christopherson, yeah. Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee Lewis, Edda James, Lucinda Williams, Neil Young, Canned Heat, Bo Diddley, Dr. John, mm. the Everly Brothers, the Pretenders, Roy Rogers, the Kingston Trio, Spencer Davis. It wasn't clear if Elvis of It Must Be 109 fame <laughs> performed there or just went to hang out there yeah. because the hanging out aspect of this place was just as legendary as the actual performances okay, at yeah. this place. All it's of a the, scene. Another, it was a another scene. scene yeah. All of these big name stars were mingling with all the below the line workers of the film studios along with all all the local washed up cowboys and just the regular valley weirdos. Yeah. And you combine that with the open door policy they had with their performers, green rooms and their dressing rooms. Like if you just went to this place, you could just go and watch like Johnny Cash get dressed. But this sounds like a really cool place, especially North Hollywood to just like, Oh, we just hung out and just like, it almost sounds like you could watch a show with as many performers as watch them perform. I imagine Chrissy Hine also in the audience watching Spencer Davis. We'll get into a few particular instances of people in the audience, but yeah, like you would just, it sounded absolutely insane yeah. there. Like they were open pretty much all day. So they would serve breakfast, lunch, and dinner and people would just stay there all the time. Like from starting from Friday nights, it would basically be just one never ending party until Monday morning. Complete. <laughs> they had barbecue on Sundays oh. also. And the crowds behaved as if this were actually the 1860s. Like with this much country music, and cowboy testosterone levels, it sounded like a really macho. And to be honest, a lot of people there seem to be homophobic 
racist or lucky for us both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why they needed a guy like their bouncer, Tiny Glover. Tiny, Tiny Glover. Uh, hold me closer, Tiny, Tiny Glover. Glover. Yeah. <laughs> hold me closer, <laughs> Tiny Glover. And that's what this like racist guy who tried yeah. to beat up somebody is saying. Uh, so Tiny Glover was six foot six, 300 pounds, who had to get into a fight pretty much every night oh at the God. Palomino. One time somebody was heckling Johnny Cash. So Johnny Cash said, why don't you come up here and we'll settle this. While the guy's climbing up on stage, Johnny Cash hit him over the head with his guitar. <laughs> cool. Just to watch him die. One time- Just to watch him cry. <laughs> One time Jerry Lee Lewis was playing and some of the people in the crowd complained he was being too loud. So Tommy went up to him and said, could you be a little bit quieter? So Jerry Lee Lewis pushed his piano off the stage. Oh my God. <laughs> One time a guy rode a horse onto the stage. Cool. One time Tiny got shot in the back with a bow and arrow. Oh my God. As all dive bars in the Valley were required, they of course had a Thursday night open mic. This was a big deal there. A young Linda Ronstadt was oh, a regular there. really? As was a young Graham Parsons wow. who got beat up by a bunch of Marines one night because they thought he looked gay. Parsons went to the open mic every week and he said it took him two years to win it because he kept losing to some yodeling grandmothers and the same guy who sang El Paso every week, which <laughs> I'm glad to know that open mics in the Valley never changed. They never changed. It's, it's literally still that. That guy who sings El Paso is still, still there. doing it. And he's winning every night. <laughs> He's on Saturday Night Live now, <laughs> And like I said, big names would just hang out there. Marlon Brando, Jim Morrison, mm. Janis Joplin, the Rolling Stones, players from the Dodgers and the Rams. Clint Eastwood loved it so much, he put it in the movie Every Which Way But Loose. Oh, really? Yeah, as did Burt Reynolds, so he put it in his movie Hooper. Oh, okay. Uh, oh, oh I, was, I don't think I've seen Hooper, but I've seen Every Which Way But Loose. In Hooper, there's a big fight scene in the Palomino. Cool. He like gets into a huge fight with Terry Bradshaw. A little later on, on February 19th, 1987, this is one of the crazy... Taj Mahal was playing. Okay. And in the audience were John Fogarty, Bob Dylan and George Harrison, oh who all started talking and then decided to get on stage and play with Taj Mahal. Oh my God. They played Proud Mary, Peggy Sue, Honey Don't, Matchbox, and a few other songs. Apparently it sounded not great, but it was pretty cool. Well, it sounded not great because Bob Dylan was there. Uh, okay. Okay. Let's not, not put down Taj Mahal. Uh, <laughs> this particular night is also when Bob Dylan and George Harrison convinced John Fogarty to start playing his old CCR stuff on tours again. Whoa, really? So this was like a turning point in yeah. John Fogarty's career, later career. The people need to hear. We got to hear Proud Son. <laughs> yeah. Or Fortunate, fortunate Son. son. No, proud Mary. Proud, well, fortunate Son. Is Proud Mary the mother to the Fortunate Son? I, is I Jesus mean, the Fortunate Son? Conception. <laughs> is Jesus the Fortunate Son? <laughs> the importance of this place during this era of their prime is incredibly overlooked in the LA music conversation yeah. when there's places like the Troubadour and the Whiskey A Go Go in town. And that's most likely because it was country music and also because it was in the valley, but it was regarded as an important testing ground for a country performer in the United States. Like cool. in their prime, like you had to do well at the Palomino. On top of that, it's credited for helping solidify the Laurel Canyon sound, the Bakersfield sound, mm. outlaw country, cosmic country, and a little later, cow punk. Right. Okay. And that sort of mixing and creating of new sounds came from the mixing of different artists and styles that were happening in this place, which is one thing I read pointed out is the sort of natural evolution that was tolerated in LA, which has created new styles outside of music right. as well. Just like people mixed together in LA. The Palomino is the second place I'm talking about today that was referred to as the Grand Ole Opry of the West sure. and was voted the nightclub of the year by the Academy of Country and Western Music for 14 straight oh years. Oh my God, really? But as any country song will tell you, 
nothing lasts forever, and there's a barbecue stain on my white t-shirt. <laughs> As the 70s turned into the late 70s, things changed both inside and outside the Palomino. To start, Billy Thomas died of a heart attack in 1978, and his wife Sherry, who he had met there, became Tommy's new partner, mm-hmm. not lover partner, yeah, yeah, but I got you business, business partner, partner yeah. with a side of love. <laughs> but outside the club, the country music scene had blown up so much that competing venues started popping up that made it harder to get acts to come to the Palomino. Sure. On top of that, country was becoming more poppy and mainstream with mm-hmm. people like Kenny Rogers, so country acts were starting to play in arenas and stadiums, which offered a lot more money than a place that like the Palomino could. So to fill in the cracks that were showing up and to try to draw in crowds that were dispersing to all these other venues, they started welcoming into music acts that weren't country, like Elvis Costello and Elton John, which is great, but it wasn't what the Palomino was about. Sure, yeah. As the 80s went on and into the 90s, you would see less country and more people like Brian Setzer, No Doubt, Jeff Beck, Social Distortion, Green Day. The Red Hot Chili Peppers were formed there right when they were becoming huge, and thousands of people crowded outside and shut down Lancashire Whoa. as they were trying, they were like climbing in windows oh trying to get in, and they had to bring in 27 cop cars to disperse <laughs> the crowd. In 1985, Tom Tommy also died of a heart attack and Billy's son, Billy Jr. took his spot running the place with Sherry and Mm -hmm. Billy Jr. took it even further away from country because he was more into metal. In 1988, a guy named Ronnie Mack, not that one, started the Barn Dance Show there, which showcased some good old-fashioned country music and was broadcast live on KCSN. And that was pretty popular and kind of kept them going until the end. To try to make ends meet around this time, they also started selling official Palomino merchandise and also started renting the place out for parties and Republican fundraising events. I mean, were they going to be at the mask having a Republican (laughs) fundraising events? No, that's where the Green Party. (laughs) In the early 90s, they increase the capacity of the place to 400 to try to make more money, but it doesn't really matter how many people you could have if people aren't coming. Yeah. So also Billy Jr. wasn't paying the bills and the roof leaked and they kept running out of alcohol. See, Billy Jr. wasn't paying the bills. Yeah. So in May 1994, Sherry took full control and promised that she was going to restore the place to its old glory, but she didn't really know music that well. So Mm -hmm. in 1995, she just sold the Palomino. It is now the Lamange Banquet Hall, and the iconic neon sign is stored safely in the Valley Relics Museum. Oh, wow, yeah. But if you drive down Lancashire late at night, and you listen real close, you can still hear the sound of Burt Reynolds not understanding the music of Brian Setzer. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, that's the Palomino Club. I would have liked that place a lot. Not because it's homophobic or racist, but because I like country music. There's one part of this story I really identify with. (laughs) I really really attach to this one part. Yeah, it sounds crazy. Yeah. Like, it's so, like, Elton John playing in North Hollywood. Like, what am I reading? It's so weird that that, and so, like, while I was doing the research, I went there and I was just, like, standing in front of it like here like Graham Parsons walked through this door it was so weird yeah it sounds insane to be us and be like you know what I kind of want to talk to Linda Ronstadt while she's getting ready for the show. Yeah, exactly. And she's just hanging around getting a drink and I could just talk to Linda Ronstadt right now. We were talking before about a show of Richie Valens, David Lee Roth, and Joan Jett or whatever. Yeah. Like if it was ever going to happen, it would have been at this oh, place. Oh yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, because they all are just hanging around and it's not a subterranean punk club. Yeah, it doesn't, well, it smells like, it smells like steak and cigarettes and, and horse, <laughs> but it doesn't smell like what the mask smelled like. Yeah, which was just like the pee of like 18 year olds who don't eat well. 
<laughs> and are just drinking like Bud Light all day. Pee fueled by Bud Light and Jack in the Box. <laughs> so that's just some of the small places Smaller. that have been hugely influential in places other than just LA. Yeah, it, like we got sort of solidifying of rock and roll, solidifying of punk and solidifying of country. But it's really strange that we, you know, these three places aren't around anymore. They were big to the people that it mattered to. to the yeah. people. But uh, once they're gone, like the things that helped create just like took it, over. They, got, they were eaten by themselves. Yeah. Like they were eaten by the monster of love. Yeah. <laughs> by the monster that they created. Yeah. It's strange that, I mean, we could, this could, we could easily be talking about the Roxy, the Whiskey, the Troubadour, like places that are just as big. But for some reason, they were able to stay in these places that were just yeah. outside of that little area. Had yeah, to, like, I, I, it seems like mismanagement. Yeah, for sure. On, I, I think the people who ran them just didn't do it as yeah. well as they did with the Troubadour. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's something about like the Troubadour is not like an easy place to, to get to. It's a small place, but somehow, yeah, it must be management. It's just like it survived all hey, of that. You know what's an easy place to get to with a huge parking lot? The old Palomino. <laughs> I don't know if it would do well, but it would be easy to get to. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so that's these are some musical venues that you can't go to anymore, yeah. but it's still interesting. <laughs> it's very interesting. Yeah. So support your local venue and let us know what your favorite local venue is that you go yeah, to. Tell us your local venue. And you know what? Tell us your dream lineup of uh, yeah. <laughs> hometown LA musicians. And you know what? The best one, we'll make it happen. Even if they're dead, <laughs> we swear we'll make it happen. We know a necromancer. We can do it. <laughs> uh, I think like the bootleg club on, I think it was like Beverly was like, well, I was like one week away from like, I'm finally going to go to this place. And that was when they shut it down. Like the beginning of the pandemic. <laughs> Greg's coming. Yeah. Burn it, burn it. <laughs> Unleash the COVID. Yeah. <laughs> uh, before we get into our listener question at the end, we want to do our plug because yep. I know all of you are just going to turn it off. Turn yeah. this off right when the listener question. Yeah. yeah. No, he didn't answer my listener question. Yeah. Click. That's the sound of your iPod classic clicking yeah, off. Yeah, <laughs> iPod classic, yeah. We'll give you just one thing to do. One thing each episode for you to do. And you know what I want you to do, all of you, for this episode? How about you post about us on social media yeah. or recommend us on like Reddit or something to yeah. people for people who might like LA history. Tell someone online about us. We don't do intros anymore. We're slightly less annoying. We're so accessible. <laughs> Everybody will like us, right? 30% less annoying. <laughs> We measured it. But we're brasher. Yeah. Less annoying, more brash. More brash. I brought up Albert Fish. He put needles in his pee-pee. Look at how dangerous I am. So yeah, make a post about us on yeah. social media, Reddit, friends about all us. that sort of stuff. Yeah. So let's get to our listener question. Okay. This one is from a guy named Nathan Stalker. Hey, Nathan Stalker. Uh, As, like he stalks No, it's what shelves. you're thinking. Okay. <laughs> the kind of guy who you wouldn't want to give your address to. <laughs> this was actually a comment on our YouTube video for one of our Candy is Dandy episodes, oh, cool. which uh, you should listen to, Candy is Dandy, our candy review podcast. So it's a three-parter, this okay. question. At what location would a candy store, this ties in both things. Yeah. At what location would a candy store do the most business? in LA. Second question, Coles or Philippe's. Third question, 7-Eleven or Arco, which I'm guessing he means AMPM. AMPM, yeah. Connected. So for the candy one, I think Westwood. Yeah. Because I think it's anything will yeah, I think anything will do well in Westwood because it's walking area and all of these kids aren't opposed to candy. Yeah. Like other That's places true. of yeah. LA. I mean there used to be a rocket fizz on Magnolia and Ma- Ma- There's Mag- a rocket fizz in Westwood. Oh, that's right. You're talking about the one in Burbank. The on one Magnolia? in Burbank. I don't know if it's still there or not, it's but it's not. I, it's long gone. Well, so candy's... we know it wouldn't do well. Yeah. Oh yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah. <laughs> but you would think. Yeah, you, I would think that because people are walking up and down that block and it's a cute little candy shop would be pretty cute and yeah. people like 
like no, sweets. Didn't work. Time tested. You know, my favorite candy shop, and this will tie into the next question. One of my favorite candy shops is the one that's inside Philippe's because after I'm done eating a big Sammy and some coffee and a little pie, I want a little candy. There's, there's a, little, a candy shop in Philippe's? I mean, there's their, there's a little store near the door where they have a bunch of merch, but they also sell like a bunch of this candy there. It's all beef flavored candy. It's all beef flavored. You have to dip the candy yeah, too. The same it's candy's all taffy. All soggy. Yeah. So for the second question, Coles or Philippe's? Uh, the, I, I, age old question. Age old question that we were, the old dyad of Greg and Daniel yeah. will never agree on. Yeah. I'm Coles. I'm Philippe's, but. It depends. Like uh, we just had this conversation with somebody over the weekend. Philippe's for breakfast, lunch, Coles for dinner. For my breakfast beef. Yeah, for my breakfast beef. Yeah, I mean Coles is a better. It's a bar. It's a very beautiful bar with great drinks and great menu. So if we're talking strictly dips, I'd probably go Philippe's. If we're talking experiences, eh, maybe. Well, that's our other show, Strictly Dips. Strictly Dips. Yeah, I'll go with Philippe's. Go ahead. I think the. Sandwiches are better at Kohl's. I think the mustard is better at Philippe's, but I will have to pick Kohl's. We'll have to go today. Go to both of them. We'll have to go grab a bunch of, steal a bunch of mustard from <laughs> Philippe's. And the final question, 7-Eleven or AM, PM? Uh, yeah. I, I say 7-Eleven because it's more dedicated rather than being just an afterthought to a gas station. Yeah. But the old AM, PM, too much good stuff commercials makes me hungry just thinking <laughs> about it. I'd say 7-Eleven uh, as well, although I find myself at AM, PM more often. Well, because it's more, con- you're getting gas, gas and you're going to go yeah, to AM, yeah. PM. But I, I like me. 7-Eleven. Yeah. I love perusing a 7-Eleven mm-hmm. late at night with my ski mask on. Yeah, ski just, mask just on. waiting to see who pulls the trigger first. <laughs> I'm just trying to stay warm. Yeah, I'm just trying to stay warm and anonymous, and I'm trying to stay warm with money. Give me yours. <laughs> yeah. Please, sir, do you have any fresh slushy that I can <laughs> put all your money in? <laughs> um, so that's been our March music episode. Uh, we'll see you in April. Or whatever that is. Something funny for <laughs> April. Probably. I have might no idea. <laughs> This, so that's an up, another episode, the latest episode, the latest of, Ellie episode of Ellie Meekly. Remembering to do a catchphrase since 2013. And almost forgetting what the catchphrase was <laughs> right before. Let's just cut this Saying the catchphrase. Out. Well, catchphrase at the beginning now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Catchphrase in the middle of each other's sentences. Yeah, a hear catch <laughs> phrase because it's before. Bye. Bye. Bye.